If you would look at page 11 of your worship folder, you'll find our reading, which comes from Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked, and they were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Oh God, you are a God that desires relationship, not because you are needy, but because you are love. And this morning, as we worship you, you are pursuing us, you are relating to us, and even now as we hear your word read and preached, God, we pray that you would continue to pursue us, pursue our hearts, and by your word and by your spirit, help us to know that you are a God that is always on the move. You are not merely standing in one place waiting, but you are coming after us, pursuing us. As a lover pursues the beloved, you come for us, Lord. And so wherever we find ourselves this morning, in place of brokenness, a sense of shame or unworthiness, or places of doubt or despair, help us to know that you are the God who moves towards us and not away, and you don't turn away, and you see us. And so may you see us this morning as we hear your word, and may we see you most of all. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. My argument this morning is that God built you for a relationship. Consider how God made Adam and then how he made Eve, or the man and the woman. I'm going to try to refer them to as the man and the woman because you have to understand that this applies to all of us. And the word Adam is actually the word for man. Consider how God creates. He creates Adam out of the dust of the ground, and then he creates the woman from the man. He does not create the woman the same way he created Adam, creating another creature beside him. He creates the woman from the man. He doesn't bring, make two separate individuals and then bring them together. He makes one person and out of this one person comes all persons. All. All of us. And uh, that's a fairly profound thing. A couple weeks back when I preached on the meaning of the body, one of the points that I was making is that your body is built for relationship. 
Your body is built for relationship. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to explore, in a sense, what does it mean as a human to be built for relationship. But before I jump into my main points this morning, I want to reflect and maybe just step back with a little bit of a recap. Most of you know we are in a sermon series called Something Beautiful for God, A Christian Vision of Human Sexuality. And we started with uh, Jesus' teaching on marriage in Matthew 19, which is really Jesus' comprehensive statement about what does it mean, what is human sexuality, marriage, relationship, singleness, everything. And what Jesus does there is very important because he's asked a question about divorce, a hard question about divorce, and what he does is he actually directs our attention back to the beginning. And what he says is, have you not read in the beginning? In the beginning. See, Jesus puts our attention on what did God intend and create. And so we've been hanging out in Genesis 1 and 2 for the past six weeks, and we'll be here for another four or five weeks. Martin Luther called Genesis 1 through 3 as like trees, fruit trees that you shake, and it just keeps dropping fruit. (laughs) And that's what we're doing. We just keep shaking the trees. But what's so important to understand in the Bible is the Edenic pattern, in a sense, that that God lays out in human relationship, in the original creation before the fall, becomes how God originally intended the created order to work. And salvation and restoration always has its reference point back to this. And so that's why we're spending so much time here. Um, The past five weeks I've been discussing um, the image of God, and we're shifting this morning a little bit. I was giving, I was sort of exploring what you might call the building blocks of the image of God. That, that to be made in the image of God is to have an original relationship with the Creator. That's the first truth about what it means to be human, is to be set in relationship with the God. To be created in the image of God is to have deep within oneself this urge, this desire for fruitfulness in life. To, to create new life, new humans, but to be fruitful, broadly speaking. To be created in the image of God is to be, as male and female, invested with power and authority in the created order to do things. To be created in the image of God is to have a body. It's to have a body. You are your body. Your body is your true self. And to be created in the image of God is to be male and female. That not just an androgynous sex, but two that come together. But in the background of all of these, hopefully if you're paying attention, that there's a sense of relationship. The relationality is a central part of being created in the image of God. And that's where I want to turn our attention this morning and, and reflect on the building blocks of what we might consider human relationships. And of course, it's important that here we see the first encounter of any human beings. And the first encounter happens to be a marriage encounter. And this is why marriage is so important and why it's not just any relationship. In a way, marriage is the original relationship. It is the foundational relationship out of which all other relationships draw their meaning and reference point. And so even if you're single here, you cannot define yourself and understand your own life excluding the reality of marriage. And so what we're looking at here is the deeper deeper ideas about what does it mean to be a human being created in his image that's built for relationship. What is that? What is this first encounter between the man and the woman teach us about human relationship? So, I have three ideas. And they really are ideas. I wrestled with the, them being too abstract, but let me give them to you. 
What we encounter in this story are three things. Three concepts, if you will. Original solitude, moral companionship, and mutual recognition. Original solitude, moral companionship, and mutual recognition. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and they brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. Now, you have to see that there's deep tension in this text. It opens with God saying, there's something that's not good here, right? This is before sin ever enters the world. Remember, in Genesis 1, God creates, and after each day, he says, he looked upon what he created, and he says, it was good, it was good, it was good. And at the end, he stepped back and says, it is very good. And then here in Genesis 2, God all of a sudden says, it is not good. What's going on here? What's not good? Did God make a mistake? Did he not think ahead? And it's interesting, too, the observation here that it's not good that the man should be alone, but instead of right away creating the woman, God brings all the animals to Adam. He brings all these animals, and Adam is exercising his power and dominion and authority, and all these animals are coming to him. And at the end, after they all come to him, then there's this sense of, it's got not good. There is nothing amongst all these creatures that God has created that is a suitable helper. Now, I want you to keep in mind as there's great mystery. <laughs> there's great mystery around this text. There, you know, why, why is it? Why is it that God didn't just create the woman in the beginning? Knowing Adam needed a woman, right? Needed a companion. Why not create from the beginning? Why allow Adam, in a sense, to feel his loneliness or his aloneness in the world? John Paul, Pope John Paul II, or JP2 as his friends know him, um, John Paul II has a, a, a work called The Theology of the Body, which is what it's referred to. You guys think my sermon series is long? Uh, a year on, John Paul uh, preached for 10 years, uh, 10 years on Theology of the Body, which is sexuality. So, um, but, but reflecting on this text, John Paul has this category, or this, this concept that he calls original solitude. And I, I want to build on that a little bit. He's, he's very difficult to understand. But there's a couple things that come out of this story that I think are helpful to reflect on. on why is it that God didn't create the woman in the beginning with Adam? There's a way that God wanted Adam to feel his aloneness in the world. There's something that God wanted to teach Adam in a way he wanted to draw out that longing. And um, what you see here is, note that all, God sends all the animals come to him, right? And he's naming them. He's, in, he's naming them. He's classifying them in a sense. And you can imagine that before the fall, um, there was a harmonious relationship between animal life and, and, um, and human life, unlike that we see today. So in a sense, he, all of creation were pets of Adam's in a sense. And yet there was, no, there, was no, there was nobody that was like him, nobody that he could relate to. But what we see here is Adam, in a sense, in this, is discovering first his freedom, though, Right? God is bringing all, these, all of life to him, and he's recognizing in a way that he, he, in a sense, is made of the same stuff as all these animals. He's made from the dust of the ground, and yet he has freedom. 
over these animals, to name them, and he has a sense of freedom that they don't have. But there's this other meaning, that, and this is what John Paul II gets at, is that, that there's a sense in which when Adam's solitude emphasizes the fact that of his place in the world as unique and singular before God. That in other words, that, that Adam is different from the rest of animal life. God creates flocks and schools and, and you know, forests, but he creates Adam as a singular, unique individual, right? There's a singularity about his unique relationship with God in creation that his aloneness, in a sense, reveals. And I think this is a, an important point because there is a way that as a whole community, we always, we always stand before God as community, but, but there's a way that each of us has a unique relationship with God as Father. Just like those of you with children, and especially if more than one child, your relationship with each of your children is different. It, there's no like interchangeability there. There's always a unique and distinct and special and dignified relationship, and it's the same kind of relationship that God has with us. And I think, and John Paul says, that's, that's part of the heart of why God does things the way he does. But, and here's the main point, and here's where I want to focus your attention. There's a way that Adam's aloneness, his discovery of his aloneness, of his solitude, awakens in him a desire for the other. Note that Adam has a perfect relationship with God. This is before the fall. Perfect relationship with God. But even that relationship isn't enough. Think about that. Because of how God created, God created Adam to need another like himself. And so the animals are too far below him, and God is too far above him. And where is it? Adam senses his incompleteness and here, I think we run into something that is very deeply offensive um, to the modern mind. And it's this statement. As isolated individuals, our lives are fundamentally incomplete. As, a, as an isolated individual, your life is fundamentally incomplete. There is something lacking in you, in me, when we don't have relationships. With others. And I think, you know, the idea, um, you know, and, and to have this incompleteness is, does not mean that we don't have dignity, to be clear. To be incomplete doesn't mean that you're not, you don't have dignity, but alone, we are incomplete. Let me spell this out a little bit more. Friends, you are created for community. God says, it is not good that the man should be alone, it is not good for you to be alone. You were created for community. Now think about the image here, going back to how God creates, right? He doesn't create two separate people from the dust of the earth and then bring them together. He creates one and then brings the other from out of the other. There's an interior, think about this, an interior ordination in a sense of the woman to the man and the man to the woman. That, that to come out of it presumes an original unity of the other. In our modern world, we usually think about ourselves as these atoms, right? These, these marbles, right? That knock in and community and relationship is like when the marbles come together and start knocking around. But we're at the end of the day, we're isolated, autonomous units. 
that so can choose in freedom to sort of relate with one another, but not in a deeply organic, physical sense, do we need each other or come from each other. I think this is, a, but, but the reality is, is that that's just not true. That's not how we experience life, and it's not a livable way. Um, a great illustration of this is uh, that movie Castaway from 2000, the one with Tom Hanks, right? He's, he's, um, he's a scientist flying somewhere to deal with some problems and in uh, Southeast Asia, and he, he has a plane crash, and he finds himself on a deserted island in the South Pacific, and he's all alone. There's nobody there. And he lives a number of years, I forget how many years, but if you know the story, there's a point in the movie where he cuts his hand, and he has this, this volleyball, called, um, which was made by Wilson, and he has, he has, his hand, bloody handprint makes a face on the volleyball, and Tom Hanks, he, he, he's all alone. He, he names the volleyball Wilson. Right? And this becomes his friend. And he talks to Wilson. He humanizes Wilson. He relates, he has conversations with Wilson. And then when he's sort of leaving the island, you know, he's built himself a raft, he's got Wilson, and Wilson is blown off and loses him. And there's a scene, and it's, I mean, it's, it's sort of ridiculous at one level, but it's so moving at another. He is just completely devastated. He's lost his volleyball, Wilson. But he's, it's as if he's lost his lifelong spouse. This idea that, that we can live alone, that we can be a world onto ourselves, that we don't need other people, it's scientifically just not true. Everywhere science says, they, I mean, they, they had some actually studies on, you know, the Wilson effect or something with, you know, like talking about how it's natural for humans to humanize animals and inanimate objects when they lack real um, human relationships in their life. You need other people. That's how God created you, Right? It goes back to this creation story. But there's another truth, I think, that, that in our culture that pushes deeply against this and that, that the Scripture um, points our, us to is this, is that you will only discover your true self in relationship. Not apart from relationship. In relationship. And here's the rub. I, I, we, in the modern world, fear covenant. We fear commitment lifelong relationships, because we, we fear that they will threaten our freedom and steal our identity. We're, we're deathly afraid of commitment, especially younger generations, millennial generations, are deathly afraid of lifelong commitment and covenant because it's a threat to identity. It's a threat to freedom. And yet, again, you only find yourself in community, not apart from community. You only find yourself in covenantal relationships, not apart from them. Another illustration here. The uh, a comedy um, made by Aziz um, um, Ansari, who's an Indian comedian, uh, called Master of None, Netflix. Um, very you know, well-reviewed and regarded, a bit of it crass, just as a warning, but really perceptive. It starts with a hookup. Dev hooks up with this girl, Rachel, who he doesn't know. There's some crazy stuff it's not appropriate for me to talk about here that goes. But then they happen to meet each other weeks later and actually start talking and get to know one another and find that they actually are really drawn to one another at a deeper level. And then a relationship develops. They eventually move in. It keeps growing. They really well together, right? And then there comes this point where they go to a wedding of a friend or something, and then they're confronted with this question, should we get married? And, and um, you know, they, it seems like everything is going fine, Right? And Dev says, 
If you are not 100% sure that you would be happy in this relationship, you should not get in it. And so the very last scene, it's tragic. You, the very last part, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm ruining the season for you, but the second season is coming online. So you guys need, or if you're behind, I'm sorry, Dupi. <laughs> but it ends this way. They both had these dreams. She wanted to go to Japan and live there and learn Japanese. He wanted to become a, a chef and goes to Italy. And the very end is they, they basically have this great relationship and then they step back and they're both flying the opposite ends of the world. Why? Because they need to find themselves first before they can commit to a relationship. See, that's the assumption of our culture. You've got to find yourself first, and commitment and covenant will keep you from doing that. And once you do that, then you go into relationship. But friends, that's just backwards. You will never find yourself outside of relationship, outside of covenant. You're lost. <laughs> You're lost. The biblical world says that you only discover true freedom. True freedom is only found in relationship, covenantal relationship, committed relationship. And a true self is only gotten there as well. And it's this experience of original solitude that awakens us to our deep desire for companionship. Look again at our text. So, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. What is it that God creates? What is, what is, what is the helper, the, the suitable helper that God creates? It's a moral companion. It's a moral companion. Um, last week I talked about this a bit, about what this idea of suitable helper or fit helper means. That word suitable or fit has this idea of, of what I talked about last week of complementarity, that there's difference between male and female. And, that, um, and the idea of complementarity is similarity in difference. It's not just similarity, that's a big part of this, but it's similarity in difference. And, and so the suitable fit helper is this, end where it's like this idea of uh, the woman is the me that's not me, right? It's my counterpart. The one who is me but is not me. It's, it's very closely related. But the idea of helper, and this is... You know, it really is the best translation, but in, our, in the English, we think of helper as a kind of lackey or as a subordinate. But there's no sense of subordination here. Because the word helper in Hebrew is the word most often used of God in his relationship to Israel. The helper is one who is providing and supplying something that the other doesn't have. The other lacks, right? And so what does God do? He creates a suitable fit, helper. One who is like and not like. One who gives and brings something and the category that I think is very um, helpful to think about this is this, this idea of moral companionship. Moral companionship. And what, because what, what Adam creates, or what God creates for the, from Adam when he creates the woman is not simply um, one that is just a clone of himself or one that's a sexual companion so he can procreate, right? Or one simply to do the work, but there's a, there's a sense of deep soul connection, moral companionship, which is a kind of mutuality between two that weds together a vocational, a common vocation and, and purpose in the world, right? Ruling with power and authority. Uh, a, a spiritual connection, right? That the woman is created in the same way as a man in the image of God and has a special relationship with God, but also, obviously, to the sexual, physical component. To have a moral companion in the world is to have someone who knows you, knows your soul, sees you, loves the same things you love, 
A moral companion in the true sense is what I think the best sense of the word of a soulmate means. And when you are, those of you who are dating or in the process or, you know, and you, you're married and you're thinking back to that courtship process, what, are you, what was the most important thing that you should have been looking for in another person, in a spouse? Not just somebody who, you know, you find yourself drawn to physically and sexually. At the end of the day, what you're longing for is a moral companion. Somebody that knows you. Somebody whose world you share. Your values you share. That there's this deep soul resonance between the two of you. See, I think in life, in our culture, we've been taught to think that the root of our loneliness has to do with our sexual deprivation. And that we're really lonely because we don't have a body that's sleeping next to us. And that that's the real loneliness. But friend, it's not true. The root of your loneliness is not sexual. Because you can throw all kinds of sex at your loneliness. All kinds, and that's what our culture does. Just throws sex at it. But here's the, the truth. The truth is, the more sex you throw at your loneliness, without covenant and commitment, the deeper your loneliness will be. <laughs> It'll, it hollows you out. That's what happens. And you think about the irony here. I mentioned, you know, most, a lot, for a lot of people, a relationship starts with sex and then you move towards commitment. It's a complete reversal of the biblical world. Friends, your deepest loneliness is moral. It's not sexual. It's because you desire union. You desire, you desire kind of oneness with another person at a level that, that, that is not just, you know, kind of physical and stimulative in a pleasurable sense of way, but you desire to be one with another person in a moral sense. Our lives are marked by a longing for unity with others. Contact with a moral companion. The ache inside of us for another, the fire that moves us in romance and love is a desire to share our lives with another. This is universal. And when we talk about sexuality, don't think of sexuality simply in terms of what people do with their genitals. <laughs> That's what we've done. We've genitalized sex. Genitalized sexuality. Such that sexuality is basically what I do with my physical parts. But actually sexuality, as the Bible understands it here in Genesis 1 and 2, actually is much more comprehensive. It's the deeper longings and drives of life that are tied into things like fruitfulness, a relationship with God, a longing to create, a longing to have a legacy. There are these deep, deep core things that drive us. Community, wholeness, family, friendship. And God's provision for this in the old creation, and still today, originally was marriage. Marriage was the place where all of those aspects of companionship coming together, the moral, the spiritual, the sexual, in one place. But in the new creation, and I, I want to go back to this, this um, and I, I keep repeating it next week, because this each, each week, but in the new creation, Jesus opens up a new vista, if you will, for what does it mean to be fruitful? What does it mean to have moral companionship outside of marriage? It doesn't require a sexual relationship. Jesus talks about the eunuch. And he says, where the eunuchs prior were a sign of the curse, those who were single were a sign of the curse, now, in the kingdom of heaven, it is possible to have the fruitfulness, to have the moral communion. And Jesus himself embodies this in his own life. And so as a church, and this is why the church is so important, friends, 
These problems around sexuality that we're dealing with in our culture, they're not just truth, you know, what does the Bible say problems. They're ecclesial problems. They're community problems. The reason the church has so little credibility when it talks about sexuality is because we are so disobedient when it comes to what it means to be the church. We're so individualistic. We're so casual. We don't have a sense of covenant. We don't actually value the community of faith as important in our lives. It's always a second, third, or fourth thought. And, and if, we, if we expect the church to be a place where people can come in and actually feel like they, this is their family, how do you have an experience of family and belonging when you don't have commitment? It doesn't work. This moral companionship is a necessary part for all of us. And it plays this fundamental role in our lives of the, the, the second, the last point I want to talk about, which is recognition. Mutual recognition. And Adam, or I'm sorry, and the, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he formed into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is the phrase I want you to, this at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, what's going on here? Adam, he sees the woman, he sees the woman, or the man, he sees the woman, and he says, that's me. <laughs> That's what he's saying. That's me and the other. That's me. That's me. It's not me, right? He's, disco- he's learning. He's discovering something. He's finding there's something awakened in him. He's recognizing himself in the other. And that's what I mean by mutual recognition, this idea that in the other you see yourself. In the other you learn about yourself. In the loving gaze of the other you become a self. That's just so fundamental to what it means to be human. There is an awakening. When you fall in love, there, when you fall in love and you get married, one of the thing, common things you experience is you learn things about yourself you never knew. There are things that come alive in you that were dormant. Even deep friendship does the same thing. Deep, committed friendship often awakens things, makes things in your life, it helps you to see things of yourself that you never saw before. Again, this is that mutual recognition. See, we can't, you always need others. I mean, we, we do desire approval, and that's not necessarily bad. There's a kind of approval that is very destructive and bad, but you all desire approval. You all de- and what is approval? Approval is recognition. It's recognition. I see you. Little children, what do they say to their parents? They, look, look at me, look at me, come look. That's always look. Look at me, do you see me? Why do they want that? They want to recognition, they want the approval of their parents, and that's a good thing. I see you. <laughs> I love you. I see what you're doing. And as adults, it doesn't change. We just don't say it that way. But we're always like, look at me, look at me, look at me. Right? And it can get distorted and twisted. But see, the, the thing is, we only become a human being when, when there's mutual recognition, when we see others and they see us. And the loving recognition of others has identity-forming power in your life. No relationship will be more formative in your life than your marriage relationship. Your wife or your husband has the power to make your identity and break your identity. Why? Because they see everything. And the deeper the relationship, the more they see, the more harm can come, but the more glory can come, the more affirmation can come. It's such a powerful thing. That's why the covenant of marriage is so important. You share yourself most intimately with another and there's no covenant, and then the person just walks away, and you've given yourself, and now it's been thrown to the ground. See, this whole idea of belonging, what does it mean to belong? 
What does it mean to have a homecoming, in a sense, that be, have a place that's home? It's to be seen. It's to be known, right? And you can't belong if you're always hiding. Let me just, parenthetically, we often hide ourselves. We want to stay at the margins of community. We want to stay at the margins, even in our marriages, often we hide ourselves. We're afraid to be known for various reasons. Sometimes they're very selfish reasons, because I want my freedom, and I'm very private, and I don't want you to know about me. Other times it's because of shame issues. I'm afraid that if you see me, you're not going to like what you see. But hiding, friends, or keeping people at a distance is destructive to our souls. David Brooks, um, the New York Times columnist, had a very uh, moving op-ed earlier this week in the New York Times called The Power of the Dinner Table. And Brooks uh, tells a story about a D.C. couple named Kathy and David with a son um, named Santi. He was part of the, the, the public schools in D.C. And he said um, it started where his friend Santi uh, had some friends that were coming to school hungry um, and invited them home to have a meal. And well, this one friend had many other friends, and they had other friends. And it turned into this, this scenario where every Thursday night there was 15 to 20 uh, teenagers in um, David and Kathy's home, and they were sharing a meal together. And they, they, all these kids, in one way or another, were suffering all kinds of issues of poverty, but they came together for this meal around this table. And one of the things is no cell phones at the table, that everybody, each time they get together, was supposed to share one thing that nobody else knew about them in the group. Around this table as well, they would share poems and songs and talk about things that they did. And David Brooks actually says, I I was attending these. (laughs) I was attending these, looking for something deeper in my life, and actually brought his daughter to one of them, in which she said, that's the warmest place I can ever imagine. It's a place that Brooks says was completely intolerant of social distance. A place that's completely intolerant of social distance. Basically, this couple, again, here's a vision of fruitfulness. You want a vision of marriage and the power of marriage and fruitfulness? Or even, even as people who are committed in community can do, have all these kids coming together. They're providing a table and what's the most important thing happening at this table for these kids? They're not just dealing with the problems. There's recognition going on. There's recognition. There's loving gaze. People are getting to be known. There's a stable environment. And it's a powerful picture, friends, of how God works, right? And how central relationship is in our lives. The dinner table plays a big role in salvation history itself. Let me close with reflecting on a story about Jesus and a table. Friends, the power of recognition is central to your identity, your sense of yourself, your sense of worth in the world. There's a story of Zacchaeus. Um, now many of you know the song, or the song about Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Zacchaeus in Luke 18 is a tax collector. He's a very short man, and he's got recognition problems. And his first problem is that he's short of stature, and he can't look through the crowd. 
He can't see Jesus, so he climbs to the top of a sycamore tree to get a look at Jesus because he wants to see him. But Zacchaeus' other recognition problem is that people see him as a crook. They see him as a, quote, great sinner. And so, in a way, he's an outcast. He doesn't have a place at the table. And what happens is Jesus comes through town, and he looks up. He says, Zacchaeus, I want to stay at your place today. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, I want to eat with you. I want to stay with you. And now think about how powerful that recognition is. And what happens as Jesus, as Zacchaeus entertains Jesus, brings him into his own home, Zacchaeus says, I will, I will make recompense for anybody that I have cheated. And Jesus says, for sure, salvation has come to this house today. See, the power of Jesus' gaze, the power of Jesus' recognition of this man, Zacchaeus, is transformative. Just like the power of your recognition of others can change them. I always like to quote this at least once a year from Martin Luther. Luther says, The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God doesn't find. So in other words, God doesn't look at us looking for something worthy to love. The love of God doesn't find what is pleasing to it. It creates it. The love of man comes through being that which is pleasing. We see things in others we like, so we love them, right? The love of God which lives in man loves sinners, evil persons, fools and weaklings, in order to make them righteous, good, and wise, and strong. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. Sinners become attractive because they are loved. This is the love of the cross, born of the cross. Friends, in the first Adam, in the first Adam, God puts him to sleep. He takes a rib out. He awakens him. And then he brings the woman to him. In the second Adam, God puts him to sleep. And that sleep is death. And out of his side, he pulls new creation. And then he awakens him in resurrection. And then he brings his people to him. And what does Jesus say? And this is what Jesus says to you. He looks at you, brothers and sisters. And he sees you and he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And you're united. And you're united with the groom. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love that out of the very side of your Son you pulled new life, us out of that, and you unite us with him. Teach us, Lord, what it means to be a people that are united with you, united with our bridegroom, and loved deeply by him. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.